Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. The second millennium was coming to a close. The country and the world was in the throes of enormous social, political, and cultural changes. Technology was advancing at a breakneck pace. Breakthroughs in communication, transportation, and energy production were only beginning to reveal their game-changing promise. And in the midst of the chaos and excitement, one man took it upon himself to take a close look at the basic infrastructure of the system around which most of the Western world had been built, and noticed something, an overlooked calculation. A calculation that, should his hunch prove right, carried catastrophic, earth-shattering implications. Plenty of people, convinced the end was near, sold off their belongings, said their final goodbyes to their loved ones, and prepared to endure the apocalypse. And then? Nothing. He'd been wrong. Life went on as normal. That man was William Miller, and the year, of course, was 1844. Miller was a northeastern farmer-turned-soldier-turned-deist-turned-apocalyptic preacher who, in an attempt to intellectually justify his midlife religious conversion to his philosophically-minded, secular-leaning deist friends, accidentally proved that clues in chapters 7 through 9 of the book of Daniel contained the roadmap to calculating the end of the world, which would occur sometime between March of 1843 and March of 1844, and, when that didn't pan out, the much more specific April 18, 1844, which had to be amended upon recalculation to the absolute, can't-miss, for-sure, end-of-the-world, October 22, 1844. The failure of Miller's glorious apocalypse and his robe-clad followers' stunning and noticeable non-ascension to heaven became known as the Great Disappointment, and it resulted in the codification of a new religious ideology among those who maintained their faith in Miller, a group we now know as Seventh-day Adventists, as well as violence and backlash from those who felt duped and were not entirely pleased that they had sold off their worldly possessions for an Armageddon that didn't pan out. But Miller wasn't the first person to be sure that the world was about to end, and he wouldn't be the last. In fact, two things have basically always been true about the last 2,000 years of Western history. Someone is always sure the world's about to end, and that person is always wrong. And as the scientific revolution pushed religious fanaticism to the back seat of the American story, it did nothing to quiet apocalyptic fervor, which would simply change shape to reflect an increasingly secular and rational worldview. What if, for instance, Jesus doesn't just appear in the clouds, or fire doesn't rain from the sky, but instead the Russians trigger a nuclear holocaust? And what if, yes, all the computers in the world malfunction when they believe it's the year 1900 and can't reconcile the fact that they shouldn't exist? As my guest Dr. Lisa Vox points out in her book, Existential Threats, the difference between the conviction of the Millerites and those of the Y2K preppers is cosmetic at best, and even though every prediction of the end times has always been wrong, it only takes one to be right, for none of that to matter. And in these uncertain times, I wanted to get her thoughts about what it means that the power to end the world has shifted from the whims of a vengeful god to the failures of a short-sighted human race. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
thanks for joining me. And I just want to ask first, um, what compelled you to write a book about the end of the world in the first place? Well, so I grew up uh, in the Southern Baptist Church, and uh, I very much uh, was taught dispensational premillennialism uh, as a kid. So by the time I was probably nine or 10, I probably could have told you who the likely Antichrist were uh, in the world. So um, when I got to college and grad school, um, I, I discovered that these beliefs were considered bizarre by a lot of my classmates, which got me you know, even more interested in, in kind of figuring out the origin of these beliefs. So uh, by the time I got to grad school, I knew I was going to do something on apocalyptic beliefs. Um, and I was kind of playing around with, with different things, uh, you know, uh, reading nuclear fiction and so forth. And um, when I was studying for my comprehensive exams, I, I decided to decompress by watching apocalyptic films. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who's gone through the comps, uh, you, you kind of probably understand that. But what I noticed when I was watching these apocalyptic films is how often they seem to reiterate the scenarios that I'd grown up with in, in the Southern Baptist Church. And so that got me interested in, in trying to figure out the relationship between the two, to what degree did they influence each other? Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got started with the dissertation topic, which became this book. Um, for people who don't know what dispensational premillennialism is, uh, can you give a brief sort of rundown of, of what that looks like? And then also specifically like the, the version of it that you grew up with, um, mm -hmm. what that looked like. So the the end times that you were um, waiting for as a child, um, what was going to happen uh, in sort of a specific narrative sense? Yes. Uh, so dispensational premillennialism, it's a fairly recent version of what we call premillennialism. And uh, with premillennialism, the idea is that uh, uh, after the second coming of Christ, he's going to uh, uh, usher in a, a millennium over which he rules. Um, and, and so this is, this is a, a very much a, a, a type of apocalypticism that you see in Christianity, you know, throughout the last couple thousand years, other types of millennialism. Um, Post-millennialism is the idea that we ourselves will usher in a millennium or essentially a thousand years of peace after which Christ will return. And that tends to be a very kind of hopeful apocalypticism, if, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. It's 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 it sort of suggests that humans can uh, better themselves uh, through Christianity. Premillennialism suggests that the world's getting worse and worse, and uh, you know ultimately uh, that's only going to stop when when Christ returns. So uh, dispensational premillennialism pre <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, emerged in the in the early 1800s. Uh, it was actually uh, invented in Ireland. Uh, by a guy named John Nelson Darby. And uh, what it is, is he, 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 he kind of came up with a new way of looking at premillennialism. He came up with sort of this very precise order of events, uh, really looking at Daniel, the ninth, ninth chapter, chapter of Daniel, and uh, of course, at the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so he outlined uh, sort of what you're probably familiar with as the left behind narrative or rapture fiction. So he basically said, you know, uh, he agreed with the, with the premillennialist take that the world was basically getting worse and worse. And, and ultimately uh, Christ was, could come back at any moment and hopefully 
uh, end uh, the worsening of conditions. But he came up with the idea of a rapture. And the rapture was this idea that um, at any moment, Christians could be uh, spirited into heaven. And, and, and by Christian, I mean uh, born-again Christians, people who are considered true Christians. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and only after that would you see the rise of the Antichrist. Um, and, then, and then ultimately, after seven years of the Antichrist uh, reigning over the world, uh, Jesus would then come back and usher in the millennium or this thousand years of peace. So um, that, was the, that was the origins of the rapture. So that's why I say it was uh, relatively recent uh, in terms of this particular version of uh, premillennialism. So the first sentence of your book I, is, is one of those things. It's, it was kind of an aha moment for me because you say something in that first sentence that um, is one of those things that I think I and maybe a lot of people have always known but never realized they knew, right? So you open your book by saying this, Westerners did not seriously consider that the world could end without a supernatural cause until scientists offered a convincing explanation for a naturalistic origin of the world. Um, and I find, like, that is really, really fascinating that um, we, we tend to think, I mean, I guess we tend to think of the end, end time scenarios now as, as man-made, um, but that for the huge centuries and centuries of uh, human history from, you know, the time of like the Roman empire on uh, these, these end world scenarios were always God intervening and, and it could happen whenever. Um, and I, so I, what I think is so interesting about that is that you talk more about Darwin and the effect Darwin had on um, the thinking, especially of apocalyptic minded Christians, than um, I think most people give credit for or or, or acknowledge um so can you talk a little bit about that the, the the darwin side of this um beyond just sort of casting into doubt the idea of a um fully in charge creation creationist god uh that, that darwin poses what were the other sort of um, ramifications of darwinism on um on christian theology yeah well so when I was working on this project, I actually became kind of obsessed with finding this moment when humans realized that the world could end without any help from a supernatural being. Right. Because um, that, that's, I, I really enjoy trying to figure out how people saw the world in, in, in previous time periods. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Like, I love talking about the Salem witchcraft trials uh, with students because, you know, I like to talk about, you know, how did people see the world? And you kind of have to remind students that the world was very supernatural. It's very mysterious. You know, a lot of the basic science we grow up with and take for granted, you know, doesn't exist. So for me, it seemed like a, you know, kind of a watershed moment that, uh, you know, people started saying, Hey, you know, um, we're getting, you know, we're getting pretty powerful here. We can, um, actually probably destroy the world or ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and sort of looking at nature and also kind of thinking about things that, that could destroy uh, humanity as well. So, um, you know, I was kind of looking at different moments and, and some people have kind of touched on this topic in articles and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of you kind of get into issues about uh, atheism and how atheists saw the world. Which, which is kind of interesting because atheists tended to see the world as uh, infinite uh, in, in the 19th century. 
but you know, there, there's no really fully articulated end that you can find uh, in the West. Uh, and I keep saying the West because you know I don't I don't want to assume <laughs> anything about histories I haven't studied in detail. But um, it, it's really not until after 1859 when Darwin uh, publishes on the origin of species that you start to see uh, these ideas appearing that you know maybe uh, you know uh, humanity is not going to be on Earth forever because you know the, the implication of on the origin of species is that. Of course, if it's survival of the fittest, and and even though he didn't talk about humans uh, in in uh, 1859, uh, that you know maybe we're not the fittest, maybe we're going to go extinct like these other species that he describes. <laughs> so um, you know, it, evolution, you know, it wasn't you know immediately accepted, of course, uh, and and so you see, um, you know, the scientific community uh, wrangled with it. It, it became pretty clear immediately that there were sort of atheistic implications. Darwin tried to avoid uh, talking about the religious side of things, even though he described himself as a materialist or essentially an atheist. Um, and uh, Thomas Huxley actually coined the term agnostic because he wanted to get away from the discussion of atheism. He, and agnostic sounded a little bit more vague and doubtful. Uh, so, um, you know, what happens you know, in the in the late 19th century is that you see a lot of, of course, uh, uh, clergy are paying attention to what's happening in science. In science and religion, you know, they, they were not, you know, as separate as we tend to think of them as being. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, it, we think about uh, the earliest natural philosophers, which is what we called them before we started calling them scientists. And they assumed that their investigations into nature would reveal uh, the truth about God and the truth about reality. So, um, you know, it wasn't weird uh, that, that people were kind of reading Darwin's scientists and then also lay people and, and kind of thinking about, you know, how do we how do we fit God into this? And so, you know, the, the implications of that, you know, you know, I think it started dawning on people, you know, that, that this this could be a way of, of, of describing human, humans coming into being without uh, without any uh, assistance from God. You know, it, it, it became kind of an alternative alternative creation story. Now you did have, you know, sort of like theistic evolution, the idea that, that God, um, you know, kind of set evolution into a uh, process. But, um, you know, uh, like I said, it's, it's by, you know, the end of the 19th century, you have um, writers thinking about, you know, what's going to happen when you run out of resources um, is, is the, you know, uh, talking about heat death and entropy um, writing about a, a sort of um, what I call racial displacement, a lot of um, fear that um, if, if you know, humanity is not the fittest species, then maybe we'll be dis, you know, um, uh, displaced by another species. And, and that kind of morphs into aliens in the, in the 20th century. Uh, but there is a lot of anxiety about that. And it, it plays a role into things like the yellow peril, uh, you know, uh, the English and uh, Americans were, of course, uh, very nervous about Asia and sort of, you know, worried that uh, that that uh, Asia, particularly the Chinese, could um, eventually conquer the United States or uh, Britain or Western Europe. So, um, you know, for for the people, you know, I'm concerned with in this book, conservative evangelicals, you know. Um, it's it, it becomes kind of a, a flashpoint among other things. I mean, this is a time period where you have people saying, you know, let's use 
science to examine the Bible and think about what is plausible and what isn't, and how do we interpret the Bible in light of new scientific findings? And um, so, for conservative evangelicals, they 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 said, you know, for instance, we need to take the Bible literally. Um, uh, this this is the Word of God, and so they um, very much kind of push back against those sorts of readings of the Bible. And uh, it's during the same time period that um, John Nelson Darby's beliefs make it to the United States. He tours the United States in the, in the 1860s. Uh, he meets with Dwight Moody, um, who was a you know, famous evangelist. And his ideas begin spreading in these same circles. And um, for, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of conservative evangelicals in the United States who uh, were, were essentially starting to define themselves against uh, other Christians, uh, Darby's um, system was, was very attractive. I mean, one, it, it sort of explained, you know, uh, what they were seeing around them. Um, but two, is also very rigorous. And... Uh, so, you know, they, they um, <laughs> even though, you know, uh, they may have wrangled over the details of evolution, you know, um, a lot of conservative evangelicals, you know, were still interested in science. They still believe that science would reveal the truth of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so the rigor and, and the methodology of dispensational premillennialism uh, was re- very attractive in that sense. So can we, let's go a little bit further back in time, because... I'm kind of interested in before the scientific revolution and um, before this rift between science and uh, religion sort of reshaped the landscape of apocalyptic thinking. Um, I can think of two real clear instances where the idea of an imminent end of the world um, is most obvious. The first, of course, being the, the genesis of Christianity itself. Um, it's obviously what Paul assumed was about to happen um, and then didn't. Um, and then also the the, the Black Death, um, which, you know, was pretty close to being the end of the world or at least the end of a certain side of civilization. Um, so in both cases, obviously, there is, you know, to use the term borrowed, borrowed from your book, an existential threat. Um, there's, there's that existential anxiety. Uh, are there other good examples of where sort of we can find um, a sort of a end times mania within history prior to um, Darwin and the and and the shift? Yeah, um, well, there there is a spate of novels in uh, England and in Europe called the Last Man uh, genre, uh, and I, I kind of distinguish this from scientific apocalypticism because it's, it was very much. Uh, what I call secular apocalypticism. They weren't sort of looking for scientific ways the world could end, but rather it was a reflection of how they felt about the world and how they felt about God. Most of them were actually pretty religious, but, um, you know, I, I, I talk about too, um, a poem by Lord Byron uh, called Darkness, which he published in 1816. And then uh, uh, Mary Shelley's uh, uh, The Last Man. Um, and so, you know, it, they're, they're very despondent and, and God's not in the narrative. Um, uh, Lord Byron's is, is sort of even worse. I mean, men essentially kind of beat each other to death. You know, the last two men on, on earth kind of kill each other with their bare hands. So, um, but, you know, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, a real attempt to kind of 
grapple with the implications of, you know, um, people ending the world themselves or, um, you know, how, how what this meant uh, for the future of humanity. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I, I think, you know, the way we use apocalyptic, of course, is also very loose. Um, I try to use it in a very literal sense in this book. I mean, if you were to read a book about a literary apocalypse, you know, it would look very different. It would be more about uh, change and transformation um, or battles between good and evil. Um, so, you know, even though, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, certainly during the Black Death, um, it, it felt um, apocalyptic and it, there were still local events and there was still a supernatural background. So, you know, I would say that the earliest, the earliest we can, I, I can really get to in the West is, is the last man genre um, that I talk a little bit about in the book. Why is this idea so, why does it have so much staying power? Um, and the reason I ask this is it doesn't take, you don't have to do that much research to realize that the, the bulk of um, premillennialism is, is, is just a, a a mishmash of like excerpts from Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. And it's sort of put into a blender and this new thing comes out. Uh, and, you know, it seems like that's a harder kind of sell from the, from the, the preaching end of it. But then also, why is it that every time the world doesn't end, um, it, it, it never seems to dissuade anybody um, from, from, carrying on thinking it's going to i think for instance of like the great disappointment right where it didn't end and then and then it's like well here's why actually we did the math wrong or, or whatever it is or even like jehovah's witnesses right have updated their end of the world several times um because it keeps not ending um, at what point does someone say like well maybe this isn't wrong and, and, and what is it? i mean you you kind of came from this background so i wonder if you have kind of first-hand knowledge why do people stick with it when it keeps not panning out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's very flexible, um, and, and and so if, you know, if you look at the uh, you know if even if you just read the fiction, it's amazing how they're always bringing in contemporary issues, social issues. You know, uh, they're, they're clearly reading you know uh, popular science and seeing seeing what's happening in the, in the scientific world, and all of these become signs of the end. So um, you know, it's it's very malleable. You can you can fit it into whatever's happening in your life whatever's mm -hmm. happening in your country. But, you know, th you know, this is a phenomenon that has been studied. Uh, most famously, Leon Fessinger wrote uh, When Prophecy Fails. Um, it was a book that came out in the in the 50s. And he, he talked about that, um, you know, contrary to what you would think, when somebody makes a prophecy like Miller did um, about the end of the world and it does not come to pass, it often ends up confirming people's beliefs rather than disconfirming. And so out of Miller's failed, uh, failed prophecies, we see the Seventh-day Adventists emerge and become a, a very strong denomination. So, you know, I, 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 I suspect it has to do with just you know, human nature, not wanting to uh, admit that you're wrong. But it, I think it also shows the power of these beliefs. I mean, one thing I wanted to do in this book was to try to get away from, you know, the mockery <laughs> that often accompanies discussions of things like Left Behind or Halloween. Yeah. And I, you know, I wanted to really impress on people that, you know, these are very serious beliefs that, that people hold and it informs their lives. And, 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 you know, as a kid, it was, you know, pretty frightening, actually. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a lot to do with it. The malleability, 
and then and then you know people kind of resisting uh, evidence that disconfirms their beliefs, and you see that in other ways too. Politics, for instance, we tend to resist the evidence that that con uh, contradicts what we already believe. Yeah. So, but why is it appealing as opposed to, I mean, I think that's what most people don't get um, from sort of an outsider perspective. Um, what, what could possibly be appealing about something so horrifying and, 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 and terrifying? Um, you know, again, I think the, the, the basic sort of outsider perspective would be something like, um, that doesn't sound good at all. And I don't want to believe that I have no urge or desire to believe that. Um, where is the, where is the appeal? If you could like put that in a nutshell, like what is it that, that makes this so um, attractive to people as opposed to what seems like logically would be the opposite. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Well, well, I think, I think it, um, makes makes sense of life. I mean, mm. if, if you're a Christian and, and, and you sort of feel like the culture is moving away from you, right, then, then this is an explanation for that. And it kind of justifies where you're at in relation to the rest of the culture. You know, I, am, I also think it has a lot to do with how we perceive our individual deaths. Um, and, you know, this, this, this whole outline, this whole framework, you know, it, it it, it gives incredible meaning to your life. I mean, the, the end's going to happen any, any, any day now. So you need to be out there. You need to be spreading uh, the, the word of God to people. Um, so, you know, it, it, it also, you know, it, we get into the, the idea of neglect, right? It, it, it's very much a group experience. I mean, if you're inside a church like that, you know, you have the, the feeling that you are part of something very special, a special community. Mm. Um you know, um, so, you know, I, I, I think that those are all reasons why uh, it's been very appealing and, and still remains um, very powerful. I want to talk about the way this plays into um, our modern politics and our, um, our modern challenges, um, of which we now have a lot that are life and death. And about 20 years ago, I, I had an experience when I was living in New York City and I was talking to, there was a um, kind of a fundamentalist rally happening in uh, Washington Square Park for, I think George W. Bush. I, I don't remember exactly what they were rallying about, but I, I got into it with um, a young evangelical fundamentalist there um, talking about uh, environmentalism and climate change and that sort of thing. And what I came away with was basically two things. One was um, that his understanding of oil was that God put it in the ground and so it makes cars go and therefore we should be using it or else God wouldn't have put it in there to make cars go. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing was this sense of, oh yeah, uh, there's an existential threat to humanity. Well, that's good because that fulfills the prophecy of, around which I build my entire um, religious understanding. And I, it was that that moment where I was like, "Oh, there's no way out of this." I I don't see how we can then mobilize and convince people on the far, especially Christian right, to deal with things like climate change and uh, pandemics because it fulfills or can be read as fulfilling their prophecy. So first of all, did I get the right impression? And secondly, how prevalent is this in 
um, our our governance and and in our policymaking. Um, this this view that actually climate change is good because it means the end time is coming faster. Yeah, I mean, you, you did get it right. So, I mean, he was kind of referring to the dominion over nature. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, you you very much uh, see that in a lot of uh, writings, particularly in the and since the nineties. It is interesting because some people, some of these dispensationalists, they, they they accept the reality of environmental threats. But they say, well, this is just another sign of the times. And then some um, have kind of joined uh, other conservatives in saying that it's being manufactured, it's, it's being uh, overemphasized. So you have a variety of approaches there. You know, in terms of anticipating the end, I, I talk a little bit about that in, in the book. I, I don't want to make it seem as if everybody, you know, is just kind of clamoring for the end of the world. But there is something, I think, there about seeing God's plan fulfilled, uh, number one. And number two, this idea that, you know, all the people in the world who are not righteous, uh, you know, uh, 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 people who uh, are pro-abortion, for instance, or uh, people who don't think there should be school prayer in public schools, you know, they're they're eventually going to get what they deserve. And and very exciting. The thing is, it's you know, it's coming. It's it's on down. You know, we can see it uh, happening in our own lives. This this um, uh, judgment, uh, final judgment. Um, you know, but but I will say the environmental issues are are interesting. I mean, there's been some pushback even among. Uh, a small minority of conservative evangelicals to say that, you know, we should practice stewardship. You know, this is God's creation. We should, we should take care of it um, and, and address uh, uh, these environmental threats. But I just don't think that's going to make very, uh, very much progress in convincing conservative evangelicals. And I think ultimately to address climate change, we're going to have to appeal to other conservatives who are not uh, dispensationalists. Uh, among evangelicals, it's 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 too uh, it's it's too easy to kind of fit any sort of threat in, into uh, that outline. You know, it's actually interesting. I was in a forum on an End Times forum in 2016 uh, during the election, and I saw people talking about Trump. And um, you know, they said, "Well, you know, um, you know, obviously uh, they were expressing some discomfort with Trump, but they, you know, felt like they had to vote for him." because of his policies. And then somebody essentially said, well, maybe he's the antichrist, but you know, at least if he's the antichrist, that means the end's coming. So wow. never going to vote for him no matter what. If he's the antichrist, we're, we're going to vote for him. Uh, if, he, if he's not the antichrist and he is truly going to bring about Christian policies, well, we're definitely going to vote for him. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's a similar dynamic that we're, we're seeing play out. Um, you know, I, I don't want to disconnect this from, you know, the larger uh, culture wars in our society, and certainly environmentalism itself has become a cultural war. And, and I think that's part of the problem is, um, you know, you start to see this idea that um, environmentalists are, uh, you know, essentially uh, secret new agers. And um, if you're a conservative evangelical who subscribes uh, to, to dispensationalism, you're going to see um, the work of, of uh, the devil, of Satan, in things like environmentalism, when that becomes linked to the culture wars, um, you know. Uh, so, for instance, you know, I, and and we do see environmentalists sometimes talking about spirituality and, and needing a new spirituality, a new relationship with nature. Um, but when a conservative evangelical hears that, they often think that uh, that means there's some sort of hidden satanic influence 
that it's an attempt to take people away uh, from Christianity, from the true Christianity. Um, so I, I, for that reason, I, I just, I just don't see it happening, at least not in this generation. Um, you know, I, I, I do think generational change uh, is coming. I, I think the question is, will conservative evangelicals end up uh, kind of withdrawing from public life and, and, and uh, isolating themselves a bit and becoming more insular? Um, are they going to continue trying to exert um, uh, uh, political power? Um, you know, are the are the younger uh, evangelicals going to be more amenable uh, to things like addressing climate change, especially as you know the consequences start to affect us all? And and I just don't know, but I'm not very hopeful at, at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. Can you shed some light on something that I've been wondering, which is the media gives a lot of coverage to the fact that there's been among evangelical churches, especially um, kind of far right evangelical churches, uh, a part of the the COVID-19 pushback um, that they want to open and that it's an infringement on religious liberty and so on and so forth. And, you know, most normal people are being like, why would you possibly want to gather shoulder to shoulder right at a time like this? Um, how, how much, if anything, do you think the, um, you know, the, again, this whole sort of end times thought process uh plays into that is it merely a culture war thing or is there an element um of a sense of like inevitability and kind of invincibility uh when it comes to covid yeah i mean i think there's an element of that um actually actually it kind of relates back to what we were just talking about the environmentalism thing i mean Mm -hmm. one exception people have uh who are conservative evangelicals to addressing environmental threats is that they say well you know god's not going to allow man to uh, destroy the world, right? Jesus is going to come back before that happens. So it's, it's never going to reach the point where, you know, the earth becomes uninhabitable because that's only going to happen, you know, when a new heaven, a new earth are created after the millennium. So um, you see, I, there's something kind of there about COVID that's kind of related. You know, we don't want to deny the supremacy of God we don't want to deny God's plan. So, you know, for them, it, it, you know, it definitely ties into the culture war and, you know, this, this kind of coalition they've made with other conservatives, particularly economic conservatives. But but there is something there about, you know, um, I, I pray, I, uh, I have the right beliefs, God's going to take care of me. And uh, whatever happens is God's will. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think it does fit into this this sense that, you know, the 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 uh, COVID might, you know, might be uh, somewhat of an inconvenience, but it's not going to, you know, completely devastate uh, this country unless God wants it to. I, for obvious reasons, have been talking a lot about QAnon. What do you think of QAnon in terms of the uh, the, the the broader picture of the tradition of kind of um, existential crises? Uh, it strikes me as kind of marrying the the two threads that um, you know your your book talks about the both the religious and the kind of secular uh, sort of into one unholy union. Um, but based on what you know of it, 
what's your impression? Like, how can you characterize what's going on there to anybody who might look at that and be completely baffled by what these people believe? Well, I guess, I guess for me, when I look at it, you know, that element of conspiracy um, is, is, is what stands out to me Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's always been an element of conspiracy in uh, dispensationalism, right? Um, You know, there's somebody in the world who's secretly the antichrist. Um, Right. There, there are demons, you know, uh, working on people to get them to deny uh, Christ. Right. Um, and so there's always something sort of happening behind the scenes. You know, um, one of my favorites is the idea that UFOs actually exist, but it's uh, it's a manifestation of, of demons, mm-hmm. and not actually aliens. So, you know, if, if you subscribe to this worldview, um, there are secret things happening everywhere, number one. And number two... A lot of the people that, you know, say um, you and I would think are good people are actually doing the work of the devil. It's it's kind of weird to think. But, you know, you know, sometimes I think about the fact that the people I grew up with in my church would find Donald Trump a um, better influence than me, (laughs) who is an academic and and therefore very suspect. Um, Mm. So. You know, that, that element of conspiracy, I think, um, makes QAnon, uh, you know, more powerful than it is. But also that that sense that, you know, all these people who seem normal, they're they're you know, they're in positions of power. They 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 say the right things are they're actually these terrible people underneath um, and, and they're and they're doing, you know, terrible things. And, and so, you know, it, it all kind of comes together in that sense. And, and the, the growth conspiracy theories, I think, um, dovetails quite well uh, with, uh, you know, the growth of uh, dispensationalism for that reason. So uh, maybe I want to kind of end with this then. As a, as a person, like how optimist, I mean, you know, this has got to be, <laughs> it's, it's just heavy stuff to, to, to cover. And I'm sure writing a, a long book about it. Um, must have had some impact on you. And I know that you've, you've grown up again with, with this sort of, um, you know, end times uh, narrative uh, with you, but I take comfort in the fact, for instance, that the predictions of the end of the world have always been wrong. And yet I can't help, but feel that that doesn't mean they're always going to be wrong and that we are closer now to fulfilling that than we ever have been. And I wonder how you navigate that, like how, how you actually feel about um, balancing what you see as just this like human trend of, of fixating on the end of the world. But also we literally do have now the ability to, to end ourselves and we are um, kind of constantly hurtling towards that, towards that end. Um, so, you know, speaking personally, how do you feel about all that? Well, you know, when I was working on the book, I, I kind of became convinced that um, the amount of apocalyptic media that we consume is is becoming a problem in itself because yeah, yeah. We, we do have all of these threats um, and, and, and there are undoubtedly threats that we don't even know about. Um, but there, there's a certain point where I feel like we're fantasizing about the end so much that, you know, it's going to it's going to make us complacent sort of, well, the world's ending anyway. You know, like right now, th- there are so many problems, it's overwhelming. And, and I feel it too. I feel the despair. You know, how are we going to uh, uh, get past this? So I, I, I um, you know, I, I, I'd say probably had a bit more hope when I finished the book in 2016. But, um, 
you know, I, for me, <laughs> yeah, for me, it's, it's kind of coming to terms with, um, you know, hopefully somebody's going to address this and, and it, it may not be the United States. Um, but I do, I do have faith that we can, if, if we, if we can figure it out and come together, we can, we can use technology, uh, and, and use, use uh, science to, to address at least some of these problems. Um, the thing that I've been faced with since I finished the book is, as I said, this kind of growing sense of despair that, you know, we're not, we're not going to get together in time. Um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a better answer. I wish I had a more hopeful answer. You know, one thing that gives me hope is that, you know, there is demographic, uh, demographic and, um, generational change coming. And, and I think, um, hopefully younger generations will, will be a little bit better, about addressing the more urgent uh, threats, um, you know, um, I struggle with it too. I mean, I, I worry about, you know, I don't have children, but I have friends with small children and I, and I look at them and I think, you know, um, how, how much worse is it going to be for you? What, what are you going to be struggling with? I will say, I think, I think we have a, a bit more time. I mean, we can't stop climate change at this point. We can trust it. We can try to deal with the consequences you know, a lot of the apocalyptic media we, we consume says, you know, the world, it's, it's all going to happen in an instant, right? Uh, <laughs> I think that's right. part of the fantasy, you know, the, the world suddenly changes and you, you know, you strap on a leather vest and, uh, you know, a gun uh, on, your, on, your, <laughs> on your waist and, and you go out there and you, you fight the zombies or, you know, the plague-ridden neighbors or something. And, you know, what, what we're actually seeing is, is just an accumulation of, of, of problems that, that feel insurmountable. And so I, that's what I would emphasize is, is, is to, you know, try not to uh, uh, get too caught up in, in the idea that the world has to end mm-hmm. you know, at, this, at this moment. Because even though premillennialists have always said that, you know, we're, we're seeing that to a certain extent, I think, among uh, people who are uh, more secular or more scientifically minded. Um, at this point. Yeah. And I guess, you know, thinking about what you've said, I can kind of see now I, I, in a different kind of a light, why that premillennialist um, narrative is, is appealing because it is a climactic single event or, or series of events. Whereas, you know, I think you're right to say that that's not going to be the case and it's going to be like a day-to-day-to-day slog. And people are going to keep enduring one way or the other uh, until they can't anymore. It's just what that looks like, right? That is um, the the thing that we tend to get wrong. I also kind of want to, can I, if if I want to just pick apart something you said in passing uh, a few moments ago that caught my attention, which is the, what I've sensed is, is the, the prevalence of um, apocalyptic TV series and movies and their popularity kind of growing over the last two decades or so. And I wonder if you think that the relationship, like if it's a chicken or egg relationship, if, um, you know, the, the, the walking deads of the world feed our anxiety or if they reflect our anxiety, like, which do you think is, is, is more going on with the prevalence of this storyline kind of coming back all over the place? Uh, well, you know, I definitely think there's a synergistic effect there. I mean, I, I think it reflects this, this uh, sense of national declension that we've had at least since 9-11. Mm. Um, a lot of, you know, anxiety about the future of the United States at the very least. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think it also reflects that just, you know, the sheer popularity. I mean, they, these books have always sold well. Um, 
And they've certainly been selling well since the 70s when Hal Lindsey's uh, late great Planet Earth was the best-selling nonfiction book of the decade. Right, right. So, um, you know, there, there's the profit motive. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say that the, the part that I, I kind of worry about is that, you know, from, from everything I've read and seen, you know, they're, they're becoming more pessimistic, which sounds weird. I mean, apocalypticism sounds pessimistic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, prior to 9-11 or so, you know, a lot of the American apocalyptic, you know, book, you know, they they held out hope, you know, maybe maybe a small group of people will survive and they'll be able to build a new world. Um, but, you know, the, these these more recent productions like The Walking Dead are very nihilistic. You know, there's there's no real meaning. There's no real hope. It, it's just, you know, an outright battle for survival. And so that's the part I worry about. So even though I, I would say it's synergistic, there's a there's a pessimism there that I worry may have an effect on people. You know, I also think it it, it reflects our narcissistic culture. To be honest, um, you know, I, you know, I said I I think you know one way or one reason people are, are attracted to apocalypticism is because it helps them process their own death. And I think we've kind of reached this point where we all have trouble kind of looking ahead like a hundred years from now and, and kind of realizing, you know, we're not going to be there. I mean, there's something very, you know, there, it's, it's very hubristic to, to think, well, I'm living in the last generation. I mean, this is it. Right. You know, and kind of looking forward to, to the end of the world in your lifetime. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a failure of imagination to a certain extent. And so I, I kind of feel like, you know, you know, one way, you know, people are, 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 kind of indulging themselves in our culture right now is through this, you know, uh, all this, all these, all this apocalyptic fantasizing, you know, this idea that the, you know, the world has to end now, you know, you just can't imagine uh, that future. Are you going to write another book about this topic or anything else? Yeah. Um, I think my next book is going to be about the, the history of the concept of free will in the United States. Ooh. I'm, I'm moving on from the end of the world. Um, I'm also, <laughs> I'm trying to move on. I'm I'm probably not going to write about conservatism again for a while because I'm, you know, like everybody else, I'm trying to figure out what the last four years mean. Um, You know, if I had finished it a year later, the book a year later, you know, I think maybe some things might have been changed. You know, and and so I'm not really sure how to process everything that's happened in the last four years. So I I have to give it some time. Yeah. Kind of return to a topic like this. Well, uh, thanks for talking to me, and it's been really enlightening and um, a great pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> thanks, Lisa. All right. Bye.